Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. I'm delighted today to be joined by Charles Mudiwa. He's the CEO of Stanbic Bank Kenya, a Zimbabwean born in Zimbabwe and has spent his banking career in a number of African markets, largely Southern African, but now finds himself at the helm of one of Kenya's largest banking institutions. Charles, I'm delighted to be joined by you this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Marcus. Great to see you and good morning, everybody. Charles, I wonder if you can take us back to the beginning. You grew up in Zimbabwe. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and tell us what motivated you then to aspire to have a career as a banker. Yeah, I was born in Zimbabwe and went to school in Zimbabwe and I did graduate in economics in Zimbabwe and enjoyed my working life in a number of places. I did teach a bit. It's part of my kind of scholarship conditions that I got at that time. And then I worked in as an economist in agriculture, as an economist in uh, in government, actually, Ministry of Finance, as a statistician. So I did a lot of work around uh, national statistics and got trained in input-output models and how to build the GDPs and all that sort of thing, which I still relish up to now. I, I find the models very fascinating and very encouraging. I did some work with Statistics Sweden, who were training us, started in Norway, so we were training us then in terms of input-output models. I worked in agriculture as an agriculture economist, and I worked for electricity company in Zimbabwe as, a, as an economist for energy and power and infrastructure. I then moved into banking, initially from finance company, where we set up a bank called AgriBank, which was an agricultural finance corporation. I was converted into a bank and I was asked to lead the conversion of that bank. A part of my training into banking was an attachment to Rubber Bank. An industrial and commercial bank of Ireland. Uh, so I did spend some time there understanding banking and learning about agricultural banking and also just industrial banking in Ireland. I came back and did some, set up the bank, which is still in existence up to now. And uh, we ran uh, as head of uh, an executive director in the bank, uh, setting up the retail banking function. And then thereafter, I was uh, asked to join Stanbic uh, in Zimbabwe as an executive director running the retail operations, setting up retail operations for the bank in Zimbabwe. Then. I subsequently am moving to South Africa, where I worked as a team that set up. At that time, South Africa was looking at expanding the banking sector, black mass market, and I was brought in to run the what we call the mass market segment. And uh, we launched a product called Mzanzi, which was a product for financial inclusion. So I spent uh, almost four years leading financial inclusion, started a group uh, after uh, the mass markets um, in the bank and quite happy with that because we increased the financial inclusion I think from 46% to about 60% during that same period so it was a great uh, kind of work. I moved into Malawi as CEO around that bank and uh, of course Zambia as CEO another bank as well and then here I am now in Kenya. It's actually quite an interesting experience because I, I became a banker because uh, when I was in high school we had a great experience where we were members of Tarak to Rotarak and our headmaster was a Rotarian, uh, which is part of the reason why I'm so passionate about Rotary. 
and he got us all to look at career paths. And I was doing sciences, chemistry, maths, and I was all determined to become either a doctor or a pharmacist or something like that. As part of the Rotary work, it was to spend time in your chosen careers. And I, I remember I went to a hospital. I was supposed to spend my whole holiday there just seeing how a hospital works. And uh, I got there, trust me, I didn't last a week. I, I, then I actually got sick myself. <laughs> just, <laughs> just until, yeah. So I, I came back and I thought, no, this is not for me. I spent a week at the pharmacy and I remember thinking, gee, I don't like the smell of medicines. So I, I did what they call a crossover during that time. I moved from sciences into economy. Then I went into a bank. Um, and I just laughed and I thought I couldn't do this. You know, and I and so I moved from sciences, I dropped uh, doing medicine and pharmacy and went to work in economics, which kinda of shocked all my friends, like, How do you do this? You're a deserter. I'm like, No, <laughs> I think I found my passion. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. A short summary of, of a career that took you from Zimbabwe to South Africa to Malawi to Zambia and now in Kenya. And as a student, I think you referenced you, you worked for Rabobank. You worked, or not as a student, as a young professional for Rabobank and for Industrial Bank of Ireland as well. Charles, I'm interested to know, as CEO of, of a big banking institution in Malawi and, and then Zambia, and Stambic really is, for the benefit of our audience, one of the bigger institutions, isn't it, in both markets? Biggest bank in both in Malawi and Zambia. Yeah, those are, those are very high-profile jobs, and it's about more than running an institution, isn't it? It's interfacing with government on a fairly frequent basis. It's managing a very public profile for the institution. For some of our audience, it's a bit analogous to uh, how we might treat celebrity footballers in, in some of our Western markets. I don't know if that analogy is fair, but tell me, what peculiar challenges of being such a a sort of renowned business leader in those markets in particular? Yeah, actually, I think it is. I mean, it's, it's more than just running an institution because you have a huge impact in a lot of things that people do and say. I remember one time the central bank governor calling me and saying, do you know you, have, you can single-handedly torpedo the whole currency because you have such market influence that you can wake up one morning and literally say, this is what the exchange rate should be. So, so you have a huge social responsibility and accountability in terms of what you do. I remember one minister of finance said to me, you know, banking is the only public sector that's privately owned. I don't know if that makes sense. And, and I found that was very profound. And I've since kind of seen it many times that while we run a bank, it's a private institution, but in many ways, it's actually a public institution because we have to publish all our results every quarter. I think we're the only sector in the private sector where you have to publish your results every quarter the only sector where everybody tries to understand what you're doing. You cannot just, your pricing is subject to scrutiny. Everything that you do, it has to be transparent and public. So there's a huge expectation that people, you're trusting people's lives, their whole livelihood, their savings, everybody has a say in what you do. So in many ways, running a bank is, is, a, is, is a public service and you have to think it in the context of that, that you're actually not just running a private enterprise, but you're actually running an enterprise that's contributing to national growth and is actually contributing public service. And people have a public interest in what you do. And therefore, you have to be alive to that fact. And what you do as a person is also material to how people see things. Because banking is about trust and perception. And people have to feel confident and trusting that their money is safe, their whole livelihoods are safe. And therefore, they feel confident that things actually happen. When they leave their money there, they expect that they get it back tomorrow. Therefore, that whole trust piece 
is actually incompetent in terms of what you do. And somebody says their child's money fees from one country to the other. I mean, like we do here, we've got people have got kids learning all over the world. I mean, when they come to you and say, I want to send my child money for school fees, they trust that you actually will send it and their child will actually go to school. When they come to you and say, I want you to give me money to buy a house, it's a dream. They actually want to live in a house. And what they see in you is somebody who actually makes it possible for them to, for them to have a house. When they are sick and they come to you and say, I want money because I pay my medical bills, you're actually helping them to get well. So you're not just about money, you're actually about people's lives. I'm interested to talk a little bit, Charles, about that phrase that you use, public interest. I'm conscious, as we all are, that we've been through and we're still in the throes of a health pandemic. We're conscious also that there are lots of other societal challenges that we face in many African countries, from joblessness to climate change. As a leader of a big and influential institution, these issues are issues that you have to contend with. But moreover, you probably have to take a lead on because what you do affects how others follow. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how keenly you felt that, I suppose, specifically during the last 14, 16 months, whilst many of our economies on the continent have been struggling and whilst we've been dealing with a really horrendous pandemic. Um, so if you think about it from a COVID point of view, I look at COVID issues from three dimensions. There is the health aspect, which we all have to deal with the safety and just being safe and healthy. I mean, COVID is a disease. So there's a huge public interest around health and safety in terms of just being healthy. And we have to play our role in terms of protecting people. We employ people with customers who come into our space. So there's a public interest to ensure that we actually are protecting our own people and our own staff and customers who come to our places that they're actually protected. I mean, when they open your branch and it's not healthy and safe, you actually have a problem. So you have to ensure that the health aspects actually addressed. And we're among the first banks in Kenya, for example, to test people's temperature when they open up the branch. We have to buy off all our branches every week. We have to make sure that all the health and safety protocols are adhered to and followed. The second one is an economic one, because COVID affected people health-wise. But arising from that, there's an economic impact arising from that. I mean, companies are struggling, so we have to now have a public interest in keeping jobs. So I remember the CEO of one of our large companies in Kenya calling me the other day and said, Charles, I have to put people on half pay, and these people have all borrowed money from you. How can you help them? So we have to suspend payments. So the, the economic impact has to be dealt with. I mean, we have to support our customers through this period. If you think about it, if you finance their restaurant and chain, which you've done, how do you deal with them? Because people, are, restaurants have been shut down, but they still need to service their debt. There's an economic impact that you have to deal with understand and support that economic impact and make sure that you are there to make sure that your customers pull through this period. Then the last piece, there's a social impact. You're talking about people who are being jobless. So if I work it out, I mean, the Ministry, I think, of Industrialising said almost 1.7 million Kenyans have lost their jobs in this period. Now, if you look at and say for every one person has lost their job, there are five other people. That gives you almost like 8.5 million people that have been affected. That's almost, I mean, a fifth of the population of the country. Now, how do we deal with that from a social point of view? And we have a foundation that we set up as a bank because we must be empathetic and supportive to community. So we've gone out there to provide wash stations. We currently did a partnership with Microsoft to train people who have been out of their job into new skills. We're doing boot camps for our women to help them kind of reorganize their lives. 
So we have to now do things that are different from a social point of view beyond just being a bank. You have to think about society in the broader context and think about all these people who have lost their jobs. How can you help them rebuild their lives and do the social consequences of that? So it's both health, it's economic, but it's also social. So you have a huge public interest in your actions and in people perceiving you empathetic, to be resilient, but also supportive during this period. Charles, I'd like to touch on, on the economy. You talked there about joblessness and those large figures that you referenced. You spoke to us about your clients in Kenya and, and how they've been unable to trade over the last period. I know you're in lockdown at the moment in Nairobi. Just this week, Kenya was able to access more than $2 billion from the IMF through the special drawing rights facility. It's very hard as an outsider to gauge just how healthy in the short to medium term Kenya's economy is, the indicators seem to demonstrate a a high risk of of debt distress. Clearly, this liquidity injection is going to be of great help. But what's your prognosis for the medium and longer term? I think there are a couple of issues to to think about here. I think the first thing that we have to realize is that COVID is only but one of the main disruptions that the world is going through. So in as much as it's probably the most pronounced but it is also one of the many, certainly from a banking sector point of view. We're already going through disruption even before COVID. I mean, from a technology point of view, globalization, climate change. So we already had huge other disruptions already happening. So it's just one extra disruption that we're having to deal with. Issues that we're all facing are now almost compounded by COVID. And we have to start saying, how do we navigate this whole world, as it's called now, which has to deal with all these other disruptions and navigate them? And so from a point of view of a national thinking, I think the kind of approach that the Kenyan government had taken was one to try and rebuild infrastructure. So a lot of work in Kenya has been around rebuilding infrastructure around what we call the big four, which speaks to agriculture, manufacturing, health, and housing. So those are the big four items that the government was driving in terms of where they need to be. So a lot of the borrowing was to build infrastructure to facilitate those four items actually happen. The question is, is this sustainable? I think if you look at Kenya's debt to GDP ratio, it's actually well within the ranges of a lot of countries. I mean, it's 60, I think it's only 60%. It's nowhere near what we see in the Western world or the US or Japan. or We are above 100%. So it's still within that range. And therefore, we do not expect that there will be any event of default from the Kenyan government at all. But having said that, we're also aware of the fact that of course, tax revenues have dropped, and I think that's an issue that we all have to be alive to. The pandemic has made economic growth much more difficult. But what I also have to say is that the Kenyan economy has shown a remarkable resilience during this period. So notwithstanding COVID, it still has shown some small growth. And in this year, 2021, we're expecting that the economy will grow about 5% or so. It's showing a rebound and some resilience, and we can see it in the numbers. If you think about it from a borrowing capability, private sector credit, January was at 9% growth year on year, private sector credit, the highest it has been since 2016. So we actually are seeing a rebound in our growth. The second thing that's important is that banking sector rescheduled 1.57 trillion shillings worth of loans during COVID. But of that, 95% of it has actually been repaid. And of the 569 billion, so that's still, still outstanding, almost 90% of it is actually current. In other words, they're not defaulting. 
So while we have seen stress and pressure, we're also seeing an economy that's also showing remarkable resilience and also coming up. Diaspora remittances, which are the largest source of dollar inflows into Kenya, are actually up year on year in spite of COVID. So all your key indicators, diaspora remittances, agriculture, have shown remarkable resilience. Tea had a bumper year last year, so up 9%. So we're actually seeing significant indicators that show the economy is rebound. But that doesn't mean that COVID has not had an impact. It has had and has slowed down the economy significantly. But the economy is showing remarkable resilience. Very encouraging and, and great to hear, Charles. I don't know if you saw, but on, on April the 6th, Jamie Dimon, the, the banking titan and CEO of JP Morgan, in his annual letter to shareholders, shared the same sort of confident outlook as you've given for Kenya. His remarks were about the global economy and, and the US specifically, as, as you might imagine. But interestingly, he did point to the significant and what he phrased as enormous competitive threats to banks, to traditional banks, posed by fintech. And he named Apple, Facebook, Google, Walmart, and spoke to the, the great strides that these technology businesses have made in terms of building digital products and services. Kenya, among other things, is known for its mobile payments technology. M-Pesa is revered, frankly, all over the world. And some really great technology innovations that have come out of Kenya in, in recent years. I wonder how you feel sitting at the helm of a traditional bank facing this disruption and erosion of your market share from the new technology players, and whether you see institutions like yours playing an increasingly smaller role in the financial system going forwards. That's not to say it wouldn't be any less impactful, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you see the future of the industry generally, the, the growth of fintech specifically. That's a great statement. I mean, first of all, I mean, Kenya, as you know, Nairobi was voted the most innovative city in Africa. So from a technology point of view, so it's a fantastic position to be in. And as you've highlighted, yes, the issue of uh, global traditional banks versus uh, the new upcoming fintechs or tech fins, depending on which side you look at it, um, is something that we all have to contend with and navigate. But having said that, I, I don't see there's doom and gloom in many respects because there are a number of points that are also important uh, for us to think about when we look at uh, the, the markets where we're going into. Um, the first thing is that I think banks, largely also due to COVID, have rapidly innovated and to some extent have actually made huge strides in innovating ourselves. So we have not set back and wait to become dinosaurs and extinct, but actually we've gone out of our way to start innovating in a lot of ways that we probably have not done in a long time. So, I mean, if you look at it, the number of mobile banks that are available now in the market is huge. Um, some of them largely owned by, still owned by banks themselves. So some of the innovations that we see, I can cite a number of world banks in the world that are actually owned by the big banks themselves. So it's not as straightforward as people would want to look at it. The second thing is that we sit on tons of data, which I think a lot of mobile fintechs are looking for. And that has helped us build capabilities and extend our ability to serve our customers better and be able to remain competitive. The third thing is our ability which I think a lot of the fintechs are struggling with, interoperability and the global capability, which allows us to be able to make payments across all the world 
and with minimal regulation, if you want to call it ability to be able to penetrate that, that gives banks a strong kind of capability that perhaps a lot of fintechs are actually looking for and they currently don't have. And then, of course, you still have a large volume of global trade that still needs to be done. Which instruments have to still be run by the financial sector, including clearing and payments, and of course, still navigate regulators. And then, of course, the huge issues around money laundering. The banks still offer capabilities which are there. So, while a lot of fintechs have capabilities in terms of technology, in terms of capability around risk management, around compliance issues, around global payments and interoperability, they're still finding themselves restricted because they're still very much lying within their own network, so to speak and not going outside. And the banks have the capabilities which they can leverage on, particularly on compliance and risk management frameworks and being able to enhance that. And the partnerships, therefore, between fintechs and global techs and banks actually will find that will help us quite a lot. And I know as Standard Bank Group, we've started doing some of those partners with, for example, our cloud technologies running through Microsoft and AWS. As part of that partnership, and we're doing some work with Salesforce, as part of our partnership with Global Tech, we're also partnering some of the Chinese fintechs as well. So we're actually starting to see banks and the Global Techs coming together to find common solutions for our clients and being able to look at it that way. So it's more competition than it is competition where we look at going into the future because that's what will pull us all together rather than each one standing on their own. So my view is that we need to focus a lot more on competition and work together to start being able to work together and deliver this. Um, so we are frenemies in many ways, but we are also very good buddies. And therefore, the only way that will get us all together is competition. Thanks for that overview, Charles. I'm not going to be able to keep you much longer. I know you've got a busy day ahead. But I did want to talk to you about gender balance. My colleagues in Nairobi, who work closely with you, tell me that you've had a long-held commitment to gender and to getting gender balance, both within the institutions within which you work but also better serving women in society. You spoke a little bit earlier about some of the support that you've been providing to women entrepreneurs during the pandemic specifically. But I wonder if you could tell me more about this commitment and how that materializes from the perspective of how you service your female customers in particular. I think the philosophy to study here is that there is a general need for us to think about the role of women in our society and how we can support women to grow. But I also recognize that beyond that, there's also a real economic issue. I mean, sense for supporting women. I mean, besides just the population dynamics that there are more than men are broadly, there's also the reality that the fastest growing middle class, certainly in Africa and the markets that I've worked in, is actually women. And I know in Zambia, we used to laugh about this and say, each time you see a Ford Ranger driving, you can be sure it's a woman driver behind it. So, so in some way, there's a real genuine economic rationale for us to support women as business people and actually make them grow. In our rural areas, the people who produce a lot of the farming is actually women. So how can we support women and make them actually successful? And hence from the need for us to recognize that as a bank. Uh, from a startup and group point of view, we subscribe with E4She. We have partnered with United Nations with UN Women. Uh, we've subscribed to United Nations, uh, United Nations uh, Sustainable Banking Principles. And therefore, we believe that supporting women is the right thing to do. But it's also not just from a social point of view, but also from a business point of view. Um, and in, in line with that, we have started working around the developing women, first of all, internally in the bank. 
at the point where I think right now 53% of my expo is actually women. And it's been a deliberate, intentional effort to do that. We've brought more women on our board. I think we now have 50% of the board's women. Um, so it has been very deliberate, intentional. So we started from building inside and growing capability. And at group level, I think we have a target right now that we at least the next two, three years, we should have at least 25% of the CEOs of countries being women. So it's a very deliberate, continuous, intentional process by the bank. Having said that, we move to customers and we say, how do we support our women customers? And in that regard, we have started work on a program we call Dada in Zambia, launched orders called Anakazi, is still running. And here we've started Dada. And it focuses on four things that we want to support women on. The first thing is about supporting them from a financial point of view, savings, lending, um, and being able to provide them with opportunities in that sense. But also, more importantly, providing markets. How do we ensure that we provide women with markets? Starting with the bank itself, we'd like to grow the market share of women be suppliers to the business, to the bank. From our current, I think we started at 2%, we're not at 5%. I'm hoping we can get to 50%, and that's really right. The second thing is about supporting women from a wellness point of view, dealing with issues like cancer. How do you support women through wellness programs? Because if they are not focused on their health, then they can't focus on productivity. So you have to get support through that. Third thing is about education and information. And a lot of it has to do with around how do you provide skills and competencies around that. And part of the work that we're doing with Microsoft in training, we've done boot camps, which we are looking at training women entrepreneurs to actually grow and give them all the resources they require to do that. Then the last thing is, of course, uh, we're doing something around uh, insurance, which is protection. How do you protect them? You give them the right support, health insurance, education insurance, and all the other protections that you can help them go through that. I mean, some of the women we support in the market, they fires, and they lose everything. How do you ensure that they're well protected around that? So it's a, it's a kind of a, a process that we go through, that we're looking at, and we're looking at a full, it's not just a product. We're looking at it as a full value proposition to support women entrepreneurs, but also ordinary women that can fulfill their potential, see their aspirations, and contribute meaningfully to the development of the economy through support by staff. Thank you, Charles. I have one last question, if I may. I'm yeah. told that you're an avid reader and that any given moment you might have as many as three books on the go. Tell us, if, if you will, what you're reading at the moment. I got this book from the governor, actually, of the Central Bank. He sent it to me. It is called Lights Out, uh, which is the pride, the delusion, and the pitfall of General Electric. And it talks about leadership uh, during this period. And it's, it's largely about one of the things that we have to be clear about is that how do we manage ourselves during this period in large, running large corporates? How do you think about them from the point of view of not losing your direction the way you want to be? And, and that's it's taught by the guy called Thomas Bright and Ted Mann. And so that's actually my reading. That's started over Easter, which I'm actually quite finding quite interesting. So that's that's what I'm currently reading at the moment. I tend to read a lot of corporate kind of books. I suppose boring, but there's novels. But I, I do find them um, quite, uh, quite interesting and enlightening as well. So thank you, Charles. That's Lights Out. What, what did you say the name of the author was? Ted Mann, writer is uh, G-R-Y-T-A. You know, because one of the things that I, I really believe in is that one of the things that I feel Africa has not really done well is to tell our stories. We have lots of stories, but we don't translate them into books and we don't write about them. So I think it's something that we need to learn to do in terms of telling our stories because there's a lot of stories.
I mean, I like Proverbs, so I'll close my statement with a, one of my favorite Proverbs that says that until the lion tells this story, tales of hunting will always favor the hunter. And like I said, <laughs> until Africa tells its story, tales of, tales of Africa will always favor the Western writers. Well, that's a very good note to end on. Uh, it, it reminded me, I had the pleasure of speaking with Sheila Kama, who used to be CEO of Debswana before she joined the African Development Bank and various development finance institutions. But she's my neighbor now in Haroni. And um, she was saying that in this global context where all nations are competing for opportunity in this globalized world, Africa must be a lot clearer in setting out what it wants, the terms in which foreign investment can move into, into markets, which tallies with, I think, a little bit about what you've just been saying in yeah, telling our own stories and being very clear. I mean, we have to tell our own stories because, and we should never feel too small to tell our stories because yeah. I think sometimes we feel too small. And I mean, again, one of my favorite proverbs says that if you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent a night with a mosquito. <laughs> Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to take the opportunity just to give a little plug to an initiative that, that Africa Practice has taken with the, the World Economic Forum's Leadership and Values Initiative, Levy. So you can go to storiesafrica.org on the web, and there you'll see a number of articles that we've been curating over the course of the last year of inspirational stories of ethical and values-based leadership from entrepreneurs to CEOs and leaders of big institutions, but throughout the spectrum. And it's our little contribution to, to telling Africa's stories. Be grateful for all of you listening to this. Log on and tell your friends. Charles, thanks so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. I wish you well. Hopefully the lockdown won't be too extended in Nairobi, where I know you are at the moment, and you'll get on top of containing this virus. Thank you very much. We wish you all the best. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.